proceedings are just about to start. Only three minutes late. Um, I think uh, it speaks both to our speaker and her topic that at 4.30 on a, uh, on a kind of wintry afternoon we have such a good uh, um, Lena Khartib is director of the Carnegie Middle East Centre in Beirut, and before that she was a co-founding head of the program on Arab Reform and Democracy at the University. And I suspect because so many of you turned up, you know she's a publisher of a series of books filming the modern Middle East, politics and cinema and Hollywood in the Arab world, Lebanese cinema, image and politics in the Middle East, um, that came out this year. Uh, last. last year, okay. So, we'll about 35 or 40 minutes. Uh, questions afterwards. Uh, so, without further ado, thank you very much for coming. Okay, thank you. Um, well, it's always a pleasure to uh, be back in London, uh, which is home to me. And uh, this is only my second time at the, uh, at the LSE. And um, I must say, I'm also very interested in so many of you have turned up. I guess Qatar uh, uh, is a, a, a very uh, unique country in the sense that it tries to be very good friends with everyone. Um, but haven't really succeeded in doing that. This is uh, the gist of my talk uh, this afternoon. Um, so without further ado, I'm just going to dive right in and say uh, the two key characteristics uh, of Qatari foreign policy, as far as I can see, are mediation and pragmatism. Um, when it comes to mediation, I'm sure uh, a lot of you have been following what Qatar has been doing over the uh, last few years. It likes to broker deals between uh, conflicting actors. So, for example, uh, it mediated between the Taliban and the United States to open an office for the Taliban in Doha. Um, it brokered uh, a deal between uh, conflicting Lebanese actors in 2008, mainly the March 8 and March 14 camp uh, in Lebanon, um, resulting in an agreement in Doha in May 2008 that paved the way for uh, presidential uh, elections. Recently, it uh, brokered the release of uh, kidnapped Lebanese uh, from uh, Syria. So Qatar has been, you know, uh, the great mediator uh, of the Middle East in recent times. Why does Qatar do this? Um, a number of reasons. Uh, the first reason, mediation is uh, driven by the desire to increase security and stability for uh, Qatar. As you know, the Middle East is a volatile region with uh, a number of actors who are in conflict with one another. So by playing the role of mediator, Qatar can actually contain those conflicts and pre prevent their spread uh, closer to home. Um, in the case of Iran, uh, this is the, uh, you know, a related reason, but uh, I, would, I would put it as a separate reason. Qatar mediates uh, between, for example, Hezbollah and its rivals. Hezbollah, as you know, is an Iranian ally. It does that because it, it wants to stay on cordial uh, relations uh, with Iran. Uh, and that's largely because it's next door, and it shares, shares the world's uh, largest gas field with, uh, with Iran. So there, there, there are kind of you know, geographical reasons why Qatar is interested in staying on good terms with, uh, with Iran. Um, the third reason why Qatar engages in mediation is because it's a very ambitious small state and it wants to expand its influence as a regional player. 
Um, early on, when uh, the previous Emir uh, Hamad took over through a, a coup uh, in, in Qatar in 1995, he recognized that the role of Saudi Arabia in the region was more or less declining. The role of Egypt was also more or less declining. And he saw in that an opening for Qatar. And he thought that Qatar, because it had a lot of resources, could actually, in a way, uh, play the role of a new regional leader in the Middle East. Um, and since then, we've had a Saudi Qatari rivalry that is ongoing and that has manifested itself, um, itself in several forms, and I will talk a bit more about that uh, later. But when we talk about uh, Saudi Qatari rivalry, we have to remember that this is not absolute. Um, at the end of the day, Qatar will not uh, overstep you know, the lines set by Saudi Arabia. And an example of this is the GCC initiative regarding Yemen following the uprising there in 2011, uh, which was led by Saudi Arabia and Qatar basically um, you know, just kind of had to support it. Um, the fourth reason why Qatar engages in mediation is because it's interested in appealing to the international community and presenting itself as a key ally of the West. So for example, it hosts uh, the uh, US Second Command um, and things like that. So why does you know, why is Qatar interested in, in presenting itself as, a, as an ally of the West? Um, first of all, back to the very first thing I mentioned, which is security. It's in a volatile region, and having these good relations with the West uh, can serve to try to guarantee its own security. The second reason is economic. Uh, Qatar recognizes that gas and oil uh, will not last forever, and it's interested in um, presenting itself as a modern business-oriented state, um, moving beyond the oil-based economy and having good relations with the international community, with attract investment, um, etc. Um, the third reason is that actually international alliances direct attention away from Qatar's own political shortcomings. Um, and the West has largely turned a blind eye to uh, the problems at home uh, in, in Qatar. As you know, there is no democracy in Qatar. Uh, there is no civil society. There is no separation between the private interests of the royal family and the public interests um, of the state. Um, if anybody's interested in probing this further, I have um, a paper coming up uh, published by the European Union on uh, the basically relationship between the governance regime in Qatar and corruption and anti-corruption where I talk about this extensively. So this is mediation. What about pragmatism? Um, Qatar has been taking an open door policy towards uh, sometimes clashing actors. So for example, good relations with Israel while hosting Hamas at the same time, seemingly contradictory. It wants to be everybody's friend. Um, why is that? It's because Qatar seeks to identify emerging trends and emerging actors and to create a place for itself within those trends to maintain political currency. So because Qatar is so ambitious when it comes to its aims to be recognized as a regional leader, it kind of sees what's trendy and it jumps on the bandwagon and it wants to have a stake in the new uh, political developments taking place uh, in the region. Um, an example of this pragmatism is the case of Libya, where, as you may know, um, Qatar moved from uh, mediation to intervention uh, following the uprising uh, against Qaddafi in 2011. It actually was at the forefront of uh, you know, uh, supporting the NATO-led campaign uh, against Qaddafi. 
Again, why did Qatar uh, do that? First of all, to appeal to the international community, and it did indeed uh, earn praise from the UK, from France, from the United States for its role in supporting uh, the NATO uh, intervention. Um, second, moving to intervention uh, when it came to uh, Libya was about adaptation, because Qatar, through this act, um, adapted its methods in order to sustain a uh, leading uh, regional position. So, when it comes to mediation, mediation worked for Qatar when the region was dominated by uh, seemingly durable authoritarian regimes. But when the Arab Spring, um, Qatar was um, forced to adapt its methods and, um, and, and change in order to uh, stay ahead of the political game. So, so that, you know, Qaddafi, no one really likes him in the international community, they want him out. There was no point in, in, in trying to just stick with mediation. So Qatar is very pragmatic uh, like that. But here we have to remember that uh, when it comes to the um, uh, uprising in Syria and Egypt, Qatar, as well as Saudi Arabia, did not initially support the uprisings in these two countries. It was only later, in the summer of 2011, that the Saudi uh, position towards uh, uh, Syria changed, and it was only uh, you know, a, a bit earlier than that, but again, not from the very beginning, uh, did we see Saudi support of the uprising uh, in uh, Egypt. Now, the reason why Saudi Arabia and Qatar were not very supportive of the uprisings at the beginning is because they had uh, engaged in rapprochement both with the Assad regime and uh, with the Mubarak uh, regime. So in the beginning, Qatar and Saudi Arabia actually did not want uh, these regimes to go. But later on, when Saudi Arabia uh, kind of gave up on Assad, uh, Qatar followed and um, it did that to maintain its political relevance. And, and the same can be applied um, to Egypt. So, when it comes to the interventionist stance uh, of Qatar, um, one key thing that we witness in all the cases that Qatar has chosen to intervene in militarily and politically is that there is an Islamist threat linking uh, these cases. Um, so, for example, in Libya, uh, Qatar has been supportive of um, Bin Hajj and uh, certain Islamists uh, until today, but you know this is kind of changing slightly. But it, it, it still pumps money into Islamist groups uh, in Libya. Uh, in Tunisia, Qatar is a key supporter of uh, Al-Nahda. Uh, when it comes to Egypt, uh, we know that Qatar is a main funder of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, when it comes to Syria, Qatar uh, funds a number of things. It uh, has given funding to the Free uh, Syrian Army. Um, in the beginning, it brokered the creation of the National Coalition for Syrian Revolutionary and Opposition Forces, even though now, of course, the coalition is uh, largely seen as a Saudi um, kind of that um, coalition. But we shouldn't forget that Qatar brokered the creation of that. Um, Qatar also, not necessarily as a state, but when it comes to Qatari non-state actors, we have funding uh, directed at uh, Islamist jihadist groups uh, in Syria, mainly in the north. And of course, Qatar is a great funder of the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria as well. So you will see that in all those cases, we have uh, Qatar, in a way, uh, placing its bets on the Islamists. Why is that? Uh, 
One reason is ideological ties, because Qatar and the Muslim Brotherhood have been on very good terms since the 90s. It hosted Muslim Brotherhood leadership, gave a platform to Yusuf al-Qaradawi. Um, there are some ideological kind of um, you know, similarities, but ideology is not the main driver. Um, Qatar actually has a tendency to pick winners. So Qatar recognized, at least from its own point of view, that Islamists, especially the Muslim Brotherhood, in its own view, are more organized and have more prospects for uh, you know, uh, being viable political actors in the region, so it chose to support them because it likes to support whoever is, uh, is, winning, is winning. But um, was Qatar betting on the wrong course? Uh, probably. Uh, Abdel Hakim bin Hajj in Libya uh, is no longer influential. Uh, as you know, uh, the Amalda uh, government in Tunisia uh, you know, is now under a lot of uh, challenges because we've seen a change uh, led by the secular opposition uh, in, in the country. Uh, in, in Egypt, needless to say, the Muslim Brotherhood leadership has been toppled and, and completely marginalized. And in Syria, the Muslim Brotherhood lost the leadership of the coalition with the election of uh, Ahmed al-Jarma, who is more uh, uh, you know, pro-Saudi than, than pro-Qatari. So, all of this put together, the pragmatism, the picking winners, the uh, engaging in many things at once, the expansive economic uh, policy, all of these things that Qatar has done in order to stay relevant and become everybody's friend have resulted in a number of risks. And I think it's worth examining those risks in detail because this will give us um, an idea about where Qatar is today when it comes to this pragmatic foreign policy that, that has been its, uh, you know, its kind of bread and butter uh, ever since uh, Hamad uh, took over um, in uh, 1995. So the first risk is that picking winners is short-sighted. And this is particularly the case when it comes to the Muslim Brotherhood. For example, in Syria, unlike Egypt, where you might think, yeah, the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, most objective observers thought that the Muslim Brotherhood are likely to be, you know, more viable political actors than anybody else in the country because, you know, they've been an organization for a while and the money services for the people. Um, but the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, for example, do not have the same leverage on the ground. Um, so Qatar, you know, simply saw a Muslim Brotherhood uh, prison and decided to support it, but actually it did not have as much knowledge about the dynamics on the ground in Syria, and in a way it's left on the wrong uh, path. Um, and actually, even Saudi Arabia faces similar problems. So the Saudi Arabia, for example, has sponsored the coalition, and also uh, the, uh, with Qatar, the Supreme Military Council, and it did that so that it can gain political and military leverage uh, in Syria. But now we know that neither uh, the um, uh, Supreme Military Council nor the coalition actually have much high impact on the ground uh, in Syria. So both Saudi Arabia and Qatar are very interested in, in having a stake in the Syrian conflict and they're choosing to support these entities as a result, but they are uh, not necessarily picking the um, you know, most impactful actors uh, amongst uh, you know, the, the, the various groups on the ground. Um, so this support for Islamists in general um, has in fact hurt Qatar's position as a trusted US ally. 
And this is seen in the case of Egypt more than anywhere else. Why is that? Because when the Muslim Brotherhood came to power uh, in Egypt through Morsi, um, it was partly because of Qatari uh, funding and Qatari support. And at the time, Qatar acted as the main interlocutor between the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and the United States. And as we know, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, leadership in Egypt kept engaging in one mistake after another. And the United States kept silent. And it was quite curious, you know, why was the United States ignoring all this overstepping of boundaries that the Muslim Brotherhood was engaging in? One reason for that, besides the, the failure of US foreign policy, and I call it a failure in general, but that's a topic for another lecture, um, part, part of the reason lies with Qatar, because Qatar kept telling the United States that it actually had the situation under control, and that the United States should wait, it should be patient, and that things would be fine, we got it, don't worry. Um, obviously, uh, this you know led to uh, a, a total disaster uh, in the end, and Qatar lost uh, you know some of its leverage with the United States as a result of uh, you know these these reassurances that actually uh, you know led, led, led to nothing. The second risk that Qatar runs because of you know this kind of um, non-strategy that it uses when it comes to foreign policy is that it has engaged um, volatile groups. As you know, Qatar and Saudi Arabia have both used Islamist jihadist groups to try to topple the Assad regime. But this reliance on Islamists has begun to backfire. Um, the longer the conflict continues, the more jihadists from not just those two countries, but around the world actually enter Syria, increasing prospects of domestic instability in their countries of origin when they go home. And so Qatar and Saudi Arabia are no exception. This is particularly the case with Saudi Arabia, where there are reportedly 5,000 Saudi nationals fighting in Syria today. Um, so this, again, has uh, attracted criticism by the United States, directed uh, not just at uh, Qatar, but also uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, and this is now a, a very big challenge for the Qatari government because once the genie is out of the bottle, it's very difficult to, you know, to control it. So these Islamists, these jihadists have been unleashed. And even though Qatar today recognizes that perhaps this was not quite the best strategy, it's very difficult for the Qatari state to rein them in. And that's also because a lot of these groups are not funded by the Qatari state, but by Qatari non-state actors. So when you talk about Qatar or Saudi Arabia, it's not just the state that uh, funds all kinds of initiatives and groups in, in the Middle East and elsewhere. You also have different princes and different nationals with their own uh, economic and political and, and geostrategic interests who are funding groups uh, for their own kind of purposes. And, and sometimes they act um, uh, contrary to what the state actually wants. So it's very difficult for Qatar to rein people uh, in uh, when it comes to the Islamists. And another uh, reason why it cannot rein them in is not just because you know it's difficult to rein in any uh, terrorist or, or, or jihadist group, but also because reining them in means exerting pressure on uh, their sponsors and exerting pressure on certain princes and nationals uh, in Qatar may actually backfire. So they do not want to upset them too much because they might destabilize the country. And this is a problem faced across the Gulf. 
Uh, in Kuwait, for example, we see a similar dynamic with Salafists who form a significant bloc uh, in parliament. And um, you know, some Salafists sponsor some jihadist groups in Syria, and the Kuwaiti government is not really able to uh, rein them in as much as it would like. And the third uh, risk that uh, Qatar runs with its expansive foreign policy is that it actually does not have the infrastructure to support it. Um, Foreign policy decisions in Qatar are made by maximum three people, the emir, the foreign uh, minister, and sometimes, you know, um, Sheikh Hamouza when uh, Hamad was, uh, was in power. Um, now Sheikh Hamouza has kind of been sidelined and, and uh, emir Hamad is sitting uh, behind, behind the scenes. Um, so the, the, but still, it's only a handful of people who, who are making uh, the decisions. There are no, you know, big established state institutions in Qatar. Um, and that means that when it comes to a lot of the initiatives that Qatar started, there was no follow-up. So uh, the mediation, for example, if you think about the Taliban, the Taliban opened an office in Doha in June of last year, and the office was closed just you know, a few weeks later. Um, when it comes to the Doha agreement brokered in Lebanon, yes, there were elections, but then the uh, government fell in 2011. And you can apply the same scenario to a lot of initiatives that are actually uh, sponsored as a mediator. Uh, also, when it comes to uh, things like interventions, sponsoring uh, different kinds of groups, because there is no state infrastructure, uh, very often support is, is, is me merely through cash, without strategy. So Qatar does not have the state capacity to actually follow up uh, on the you know, great ideas, grand ideas uh, that are decided by the people um, at the top. And this has also led to criticism, I mean, we talked about US criticism, but this has also led to criticism by other Gulf countries, uh, such as the UAE. So countries in the Gulf, in a way, look at Qatari expansive foreign policy and worry, simply because Qatar is there, right there, in, the, in their region, and they see that this is potentially unstable. So they see Qatar as this wild child of the Gulf that might eventually uh, bring, um, uh, you know, problems uh, back, uh, back home. Um, the fourth risk that Qatar uh, runs is vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Saudi Arabia. <coughs> now, Saudi Arabia sees the Muslim Brotherhood as its, its strongest challenger. Uh, Saudi Arabia cares more about the Muslim Brotherhood uh, becoming powerful than almost any other group uh, you know, um, in the region, at least amongst uh, Sunni groups. Um, and Saudi Arabia has not been happy about uh, what Qatar has been doing regarding uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, especially in Egypt. So Saudi Arabia felt that Qatar went too far in its support for the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in Egypt. Um, funnily enough, now Qatar regards Saudi Arabia as having gone too far in Egypt. So the, the kind of formula has been reversed. Uh, with the removal of Morsi from power and, and the kind of uh, you know uh, witch hunt going um, uh, after uh, Muslim Brotherhood figures, uh, Qatar is, is, is not very happy. But the Qatari-Saudi rivalry um, is a is a is a is a problem. And um, anyway, if you think about it, it's a it's a kind of dance uh, the Saudi Qatari uh, rivalry, and it's fueled by both pragmatism and ideology. Um, and I just wanted to give you some examples just to see that this rivalry is not absolute. It's not about one actor being right and one actor being wrong. It's, it's kind of more complicated than that. Um, so for example, 
When Saudi Arabia pitched the creation of the Gulf Union, Saudi Arabia, you know, for a while last year, decided that it wanted to do that. Well, actually, it was two years ago, but it came to the fore uh, last year. Saudi Arabia wanted all Gulf Union institutions to be based in Riyadh and for the union to have a kind of top-down uh, structure where Saudi Arabia is, is at the top. Um, other Gulf countries, uh, led by Oman, uh, saw in that proposal a marginalization of their roles and they fought against the idea. They did not want to be part of the union led by Saudi Arabia. Um, so Qatar recognized that this is not popular and it did not want to do that either, so it pitched the inclusion of Morocco um, in the union, even though Saudi Arabia did not initially want to include Morocco in the union, uh, because strategically it, it, it kind of doesn't make sense, and Morocco is a bit of an outlier. It does not have the strong ties or the trade ties that Jordan has you know, with, with Gulf countries. Um, but... Um, Saudi Arabia thought, oh, but it's a monarchy at the end of the day, why not? Now, Qatar pitched Morocco, knowing very well that Morocco was going to be embarrassed by this and actually did not want it, because the Moroccan king um, ultimately does not want to be seen as lacking in agency vis-a-vis uh, -vis his uh, own people, but at the same time, Morocco could not quite say no to Saudi Arabia. Eventually, the Gulf Union idea was fought by Gulf countries, and it did not, it did not happen. So Qatar kind of got its own way in that it uh, did not let the Gulf Union happen without overstepping um, you know, the boundaries set by Saudi Arabia. So it's, it's kind of careful. So when it comes to the rivalry, a lot of people might you know, imagine confrontation or something. And recently, I mean, I, I, I was just in Qatar. I came back on Sunday evening. And there were rumors that Saudi Arabia is not happy and it's going to close the borders with, uh, with Qatar and impose sanctions. Uh, I don't think this is, this is um, you know, <laughs> going to happen. Um, the other issue that we have to think about when it comes to the Saudi-Qatari rivalry is the uh, domestic dimension within uh, Saudi Arabia uh, itself. So um, we have uh, right now a king who is more or less on his way out uh, in Saudi Arabia. We have a crown prince who is also on his way out, uh, Salman. He's, he's not in, in very good shape. Um, be, beneath that, we have a number of princes who are in competition. Uh, so for a while, Bandar was leading the show, and he is very much a, a hardline kind of person. He's been a principal funder of a number of Islamist jihadist groups uh, in Syria, for example. He does not like Iran, uh, prefers to take a hardline stance towards Iran. Facing him, the foreign minister, uh, Saud al-Faisal, who's actually more interested in keeping you know, relations with the West smooth, and uh, recently, Saud uh, al-Faisal was the one to push the March 14 coalition in Lebanon to accept forming a government with their rivals, uh, Hezbollah and March 8. And he also um, uh, pushed the Syrian coalition to participate in Geneva too. So he's more of a, you know, let's negotiate and talk uh, pragmatic kind of guy. Um, when it comes to the Syrian conflict, uh, we have the Bandar line and the uh, Saud al-Faisal line almost uh, clashing in the sense that um, the national coalition uh, was a, very much a project of Saud al-Faisal, whereas Bandar sponsored the creation of something called the Islamic Front, um, which uh, was created and wanted to uh, present itself initially as a challenger to the coalition. But here Qatar intervened, and actually the Qatari foreign minister went to Turkey to meet with the Islamic Front and convinced them not to actually try to topple the coalition or undermine the coalition because 
and he rightly recognized that the coalition has international support, whereas practically no Western country would really support the Islamic Front, and he managed to convince them to actually calm down, and they did. Um, and so, in a way, although Qatar, you know, shakes Saudi Arabia a bit, ultimately it does not want it to completely fail. And so Qatar, despite its shaking of the coalition by withdrawing Muslim Brotherhood members from the coalition, ultimately does not want the coalition uh, to fail either. So we should remember these things so as not to, you know, think about the Saudi-Qatari rivalry as this kind of black and white um, situation. And, and at the same time, in this, in this rivalry, Saudi Arabia remains big brother. Saudi Arabia remains the more uh, powerful actor. And I think um, one thing that has happened recently with Syria is that there has been a lot of Saudi pressure um, on Qatar. Uh, so we saw a change of leadership with the Free Syrian Army uh, recently, uh, with um, Salim Idris uh, being replaced by Abdel al-Bashir. Um, and um, basically, Abdel al-Bashir comes from the ground in Syria, so it's an attempt to widen support for the coalition and increase its legitimacy um, within, uh, within Syria. Um, so, what we've seen as a result of U.S. pressure uh, on Qatar because it's funding of, uh, of Islamist groups, as well as Saudi pressure uh, on Qatar, recently we've seen uh, a lessening of the intensity of Qatari uh, engagement uh, in, uh, in Syria. And here a lot of people are wondering, okay, so how do we explain uh, the kind of seeming change in foreign policy that has taken place with uh, the takeover uh, of power by Prince Tamim from his father? So I, I outlined the external pressures on Qatar that, uh, that have driven this, um, but at the same time there is also pressure from within. Uh, the domestic scene in Qatar is not normally talked about much and not reported in the media in Qatar, that's for sure. But there actually is a degree of anger uh, amongst the Qatari population to the reaction uh, in the region towards Qatar. So when the Gulf countries criticize Qatar, when the United States criticize Qatar, when world attention is directed at Qatar because of human rights violations <coughs> regarding the World Cup, etc., etc., Qatari nationals, you know, start questioning their leader and saying, you know, what's in it for us? All this, this expansionist policy, why are we actually doing this? Um, so, part of the reason why um, Tamim took over in this way is because of uh, Saudi pressure uh, mainly tied to Egypt, but at the same time, the Emir himself uh, recognized that things were kind of starting to get a bit out of hand, and in a way, handing over to Tamim was a, a kind of smart way to lessen the intensity without being seen as, you know, failing or backing off. Um, so, Amit Hamad has not been sidelined completely. He's apparently here in London. So he's in the background running the show. He's the one who wrote the vision for Qatar, uh, the vision 2030, which outlines Qatar's you know, economic expansion and, and, and kind of, you know, some political aims. So he's still very much um, in the picture. Um, but uh, what we've seen is not a change in foreign policy with the takeover of, Te of Tamim, but a change in intensity, so it's a bit less than it was before, um, and a change in style, in the sense that Tamim is not as you know, media-friendly as, uh, as, as his father. But Qatar has kept its relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood going. And we have to remember that 
contract cannot all of a sudden abandon this key client of, uh, of itself. So uh, it, it would be, you know, very short-sighted to, to, to imagine that Qatari foreign policy under Kamim is going to suddenly take a very different direction from that taken under his father. It's not a different direction, it's just a slightly calmer uh, direction because, as I said, Qatar has uh, the leadership, but it's, it's overextended and um, it also uh, worries about the domestic uh, situation. So what's happening domestically is that although Qatar remains an autocratic state where you know, the leader does not necessarily listen to his people, but the leader is very much worried about his own legitimacy and his own durability and the durability of the regime. And so um, because Qatar found out that Qatari nationals are, are, are not very happy, there have been some ministerial reshuffles going on recently. Uh, the new emir is spending a lot of time reaching out to different tribes in Qatar to try to you know, get them to support him. Ultimately, Qatar is a state that has seen many political coups in its history, and Tamim knows that he's still young. He needs to establish legitimacy for himself, so he's focusing a lot of his attention today on sorting out um, domestic issues. Um, I'm just going to end by um, talking about you know, what the future may um, bring for, uh, for Qatar. Um, a lot of what the future may bring will depend on the domestic challenges in Qatar and whether Tamim does manage to uh, establish legitimacy amongst tribes and amongst other Qatari princes who you know, might see uh, uh, you know, an opening for themselves to take over uh, one day. But also, a lot depends on the succession in, Sa in Saudi Arabia. So recently, uh, Prince Bandar has been, uh, as I said, sidelined um, after uh, leading. Uh, right now, we have Mohammed um, bin Naif taking over the Syria fight from him. Mohammed um, bin Naif is very much like uh, Saud al-Faisal, interested in keeping relations with the West uh, uh, kind of going. Uh, the King's Secretary, Tuwajri, is also on the side of uh, Mohammed bin Naif. And they are changing the Saudi uh, way of, of, of playing the game. Um, and so who actually ends up taking over in Saudi Arabia will have an impact on uh, how things uh, go in Qatar. Uh, another thing that will impact uh, the situation uh, in Qatar is what happens to the jihadists. So although Bandar has been sidelined, he's still, until today, funding uh, certain Islamist groups, and we are seeing the activities of those groups in places like Lebanon. And also what happens to the jihadists, the 5,000 who have been unleashed, and some of the, the, the groups sponsored by Qatar. So all of these factors will have an impact on what happens um, in, uh, in, in Qatar itself. Uh, and uh, so, so that's one thing. The second thing that, that the future may bring to Qatar uh, is to do with its pragmatism. I think Qatari pragmatism is, is still alive and well, even though it's a bit less intense than before. And uh, an interesting way in which this is being played out right now is economically uh, when it comes to Syria. So there are uh, economic ties between a number of Gulf countries and certain elements of the uh, Syrian regime, and Qatar is no exception. And so, ironically, uh, Qatar may well, uh, further down the line, end up moving from being one of the biggest backers of the Syrian uprising to being uh, a main sponsor of uh, reconstruction and business deals uh, happening uh, in Syria, uh, led by the uh, old elites. Because um, ultimately, all Gulf regimes want, really, is, is their own longevity. Uh, more than anything else. So, you know, if that's what it takes, uh, it's, it's not too surprising to see them actually uh, engaging in this kind of ironic 
uh, formula whereby the, the you know the same people who in a way destroyed Syria will end up benefiting uh, economically um, from it. Um, the uh, third thing that uh, is is uh, you know likely to happen in the future when it comes to Qatar is uh, to do with the political aspect of the Syria uh, file. And um, what we're seeing today, as I said, because Saudi Arabia is becoming um, more, let's say, moderate with inflation marks regarding uh, uh, what to do about, about Syria in the sense that uh, it pushed the coalition to participate in Geneva too, and there are back-channel talks starting between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and this is part of the reason why, you know, Saudi Faisal told the March 14 coalition in Lebanon to actually uh, sit in the same government as, as Hezbollah. Um, so we have uh, a new dynamic uh, in, in the region uh, emerging. Um, and, and in this dynamic, um, Iran is, I think, in the future, going to be more open to compromise than, than it has been uh, recently. And that's because Iran is very much interested in being recognized as a political leader in the Middle East. So now the nuclear negotiations are going relatively well uh, in the case of Iran, and Iran is, um, you know, in the future not beyond uh, accepting certain compromises in Syria in order to maintain its its kind of new uh, position, you know, uh, being accepted in the international community. This is not something easy. It depends on timing. Um, I'm actually a minority in, in basically taking this view, but, but I don't think it's impossible. Uh, ultimately, uh, politics is, 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 is largely about pragmatism, even in the cases of countries like Saudi Arabia, which you know normally are seen as, as very ideological. I mean, think about Saudi Arabia itself. The U.S. has put a lot of pressure on Saudi Arabia to get it to uh, more or less moderate uh, its its uh, work in, in, in the Gulf. And in a way, um, you know, Saudi Arabia has won the Trinitation marks in Egypt. It won in the Gulf. Uh, it has its clients in, in all these places. Um, although it's still making mistakes when it comes to the Sinai uh, Desert uh, because of the crackdown of the Muslim Brotherhood that's actually uh, causing extremism to, uh, to increase uh, in, uh, in Egypt. But still, um, Saudi Arabia is, is kind of changing direction and this is music to Iran's uh, ears. So um, where does this leave Qatar? Uh, the Saudi uh, uh, Qatari rivalry is, is very much there. Uh, despite all these, you know, more or less compromises, the Saudi-Iranian rivalry is very much there, and, and, and we cannot, you know, pretend that even if both uh, countries compromise, that this will lead to them, you know, being friends one day. Um, so what will happen, is, as far as I can see, is, and, and this is where Syria becomes the kind of symbol of this, is a new Cold War, that's a three-way Cold War uh, in the region, where you have the three key actors being Iran, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. I mean, the rivalries have been there for a while. It's just that what, what, what will happen, I think, uh, in the near future is that all three actors will actually be less empowered. Saudi Arabia, less empowered. Iran, less empowered because it will be forced to compromise. And Qatar, less empowered because of overextension and all this pressure. And uh, ultimately, um, this is, I think, where the, where the region is heading. Um, but at the end of the day, when it comes to Syria, all of these countries will have uh, a stake in the Syrian conflict and will uh, do everything they can to 
remain stakeholders uh, in Syria because of this whole war. So I think Syria is, is becoming the front uh, where the uh, uh, tensions between these two countries uh, manifest themselves most vividly. And um, this is where I will stop, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much.